Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and I'm just back from SHOT Show. I'm going to have an episode about SHOT in a minute, but we had this episode planned for immediately after SHOT. On the phone, I got Big Jim Fish. You may know him from doing the optics reviews on the front page of Sniper's Hide. Real popular cat out there with the manufacturers because he does reviews that are just so detailed. And today, Jim and I are going to talk about those $1,000 and below optics, his experience with them, what he's looking at when um, he talks about them. And we're just going to take you from $1,000 optics, and eventually this is going to go to the $2,000 optics, but we may hit that a little bit later. Right now, welcome, Jim, to the Everyday Sniper Podcast. Yeah, hello, Frank. So how you been? You missed SHOT Show. You didn't come out this year. Uh, guys were looking for you, as I mentioned, uh, offline. But uh, other than that, how was your holiday? How was your new year? How was everything going for you? Well, it was relaxing without having to do any SHOT Show stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, I, got, I, had a, I had a bit more time at home this year with the kids. And, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's relaxing. Two young kids, it's not so relaxing. But, uh no. Yeah, I got I, I yeah, I feel like I got a little caught up on the reviews in general too for for the year and actually didn't end up posting two and a half months in this year's review thread. <laughs> so I actually got that up in January. I was like, I don't know if I've ever done that in January before. That's pretty well see what time off gives you. It gives you that opportunity to knock some stuff out. That's pretty good though. Yeah, I think so. Excellent, excellent. So um your reviews on Sniper's Hide, they, I mean, people bring them up all the time, the amount of detail you go into. Before we get too deep, because your review process had changed over a couple years, um, why don't you just kind of go over, not, you know, unleash everything, but tell people some of the things you're looking at, how you approach a review, and, and just over these years, maybe how some of the things changed and the philosophies you bring to the table when you put out these big detailed reviews that you do yeah so over the course of the year things have changed a lot i think the first rifle wrote rifle reviews i mean the rifles first rifle scope reviews must have been way back in 2015 ish and at that point i started by writing reviews on a couple of scopes i just happened to have and sort of added different things to look at as I learned along the way to the point that I actually ended up with a checklist of exactly what to test in exactly what order <laughs> that has, that has really systematized it to the point that now you look at one of my reviews and it's basically in the same order as the last review with the exact same testing along the way. And that that's now broken out into testing a bunch of different aspects of optical performance, like, resolution and chromatic aberration and uh, contrast I've, I've gone through like three or four different permutations of test targets for contrast that one's sort of a nightmare to deal with and uh, then i've got field of view i now have a a standardized target that i put up for or or place that i look at for field of view and so the same buildings and stuff are are in each shot which is the purpose by the way of those that combined um, through the scope shot, that's not supposed to show your resolution. It really doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it 
shows you the extent of the field of view of the optic, the resolution, because the interaction between cameras and rifle scopes, like through the scope photos are just not. We spent years like people may hear this because like everything in the Internet seems like 2016. It started over again and nobody remembers (laughs) anything that was done previously. For years, we chased camera companies and sort of like computer people around camera companies to figure out if there was a way to standardize a photograph through a scope and to actually pull useful information out of it, similar to how they do with camera lens reviews, Mm -hmm. but it is incredibly difficult. And it never worked right. There was some image test software that was out there and we tried and different things like that. But at the end of the day, it just does not work how someone thinks it should. So as you're saying, it's difficult. Like one, kudos on the checklist. I'm a huge checklist guy. Checklists are super important in making sure you're standardizing that. But yeah, just trying to almost play a resolution game without resolution equipment is really tough. Yeah, it just doesn't work at all. (laughs) But, you know, it gives you a good indication of what your reticle is going to look like through the scope, and it's okay for field of view. Right. Other than that, it's just not useful. (laughs) And in big field of view, like Collis has that new 3 to 28, they were promoting uh, field of view the entire time at SHOT Show. Everything was about the field of view, field of view, and people were coming up to me with the new Collis uh, 3 to 28 there saying, you know, my scope goes to eight mils. This scope goes to 8.2 and the Collis is going to nine, four, you know, stuff like that is, is where we're hearing people talk and describe it now where the it's placed on the reticle at certain powers. Yeah. And well, you know, it gives you the advantage that you, you can lose picture less during recoil. Right. So you can effectively you can run it at a higher power and not lose your target is is really what it gives you. People think that, oh, I'm going to see more stuff, but really like the field of view of a rifle scope is not binoculars. Like you're not going to go glassing for game or something with your rifle scope. It really is that it, that it maintains your ability to stay on target through the recoil. Right, right. And it makes perfect sense. So go ahead, continue with uh, some of your processes there. Yeah. So um, over the years, I've I actually built one of those Humbler devices that uh, that I don't remember who it was. Ended up naming that. Kirk, thing. I what's you, his name? Kirk or something? I don't remember his name either. But yeah, go ahead. So I think like it might our be the precision scope. rifle blog guy that named it. Yeah. Um. It, it's it's a super heavy fixture. I have the sniper's hide tool, which is thirty pounds. Yes. We use so absolutely. So you have a fixture that has extra weight to it so it doesn't move the optic when you're adjusting it. Well, mine's wooden and bolted to a, like, what is it, like 15 by 15 post. Yeah, yeah. So it's, in, instead of being heavy, it's just fixed. <laughs> but yeah, it's that idea. And I have uh, thumb screw adjustments on it that are really fine threaded. So I can, I can uh, adjust the scope both... Uh, horizontally and vertically so that I can put it exactly on where I want it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. And that allows me to test. It allows me to test whether the reticles canted, which is a really difficult thing for people to test. And um, also I can test whether the adjustments are tracking within 
better than one percent. Nice, nice, and honestly, just not so much reticle canted from the, from the factory, but I know with our fixture and using our twelve target test, we find one third of students in a class their scope reticle will be canted in their rings every single class without fail. This is not debatable. One third of you, your reticle will be canted when we check. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just a fact of life. One third of the students in a 12 person class will have their scope canted in, in the rings. And fortunately, I've discovered um, reticle cant is not as common a problem in a scopes manufacturer as is the reticle not being 100% the correct size it is because it's the worst problem to have, right? Most, right. People that, most people that are a few percent off on the adjustment magnitude, especially if you're doing your dope at distance, you're not going to notice that. It's just going to get hidden in the dope. Like if, if you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're correct. It's, yeah, lost, so it, it's lost in the noise, that small percentage. Well, it's not just less than the noise, but you'll literally accidentally put it in your dope. Like, because your dope will be based on what that scope and rifle combination is doing. Right, correct, and so correct. You won't be 2% off. You'll be fine because your dope will include whatever adjustment magnitude error your scope has. Yes, correct, um, correct. Because it's usually just a few percent off. The same is not true for your if the thing's canted, especially if it's canted by a significant amount, it will then throw you left or right on your longer shots, depending on which direction it's canted. But fortunately, that is not as common as a little adjustment magnitude error. Which is very yeah. cool to know that, they, that, that they're not... I mean, honestly, we don't see that either. We don't see a lot of big, big problems coming out of them lately. Like their batch testing tends to be good. Every once in a while, you run into like a really hard bound parallax or like a turret that might have to come off and be replaced on the the, the stem because it's just not right and it doesn't turn correctly. And it, it, it's it, it, that's canted or crooked for lack of a better word. But we don't see the big problems that we were seeing you know, 12 years ago when things were coming up, it seems like people realize, especially with the internet, you know, one bad situation like that can torpedo a line. Yeah, definitely QC across the board is improving. Some of the $1,000 scope companies, Athlon, for instance, have really, really tight QC, um, even tighter than a lot of 2K scope companies in the case of that one. But even the ones that were loose seem to be like Cytron's was a bit loose and it seems to be tightening up. And the thing with Athlon, when I was just meeting with them, they have some night vision and stuff coming out and they're going to be kind of bringing around through Sniper's Hide. So I had some really good conversations with Athlon at SHOT Show. And it, it we when we tested them and we're putting our information out for the public, um, they were one of the top, tracking scopes like they may have a little thing here or there you know me and with some guys we may have to readjust their zero stop because they messed that up or something some <laughs> some of the overcomplicated zero stops were an issue but when we tracked them almost all the athlons were close to that 100 percent, if not 100 percent, in our sheet yeah i think they've got a less than a one percent um error that they accept in their qc yeah yeah which is great 
Yeah, which is very tight. I think the if I was to guess, I would say the industry average is around 2% now based on what I have seen. And that's typical for us too. I think 2%, if, if somebody drops into a 3%, I think they'll almost talk, to, like send it in, we'll fix it. But two seems to be spec across yeah. the board for everything. So 2% of anything, it's within spec for them. That's what it seems like to me. Although reticles have been better than adjustments in, in terms of, I have fewer reticles that are 1% off than adjustments. Yes, absolutely. All, and, and that's because there's only so many places that make radicals. Yeah. So, all right, keep them. All right. So I guess we'll start with kind of the basics in that in general, over the course of these last, what, three or four years that I've done the sub 1K scope reviews, like the amount of improvement in these things just in the last few years is pretty dramatic to the point that there's quite a few of these out that I don't mind shooting at all which was not the case in past years. In past years, you didn't even have feature sets in sub-1K optics that could really do long range, let alone the kind of tolerances and decent glass. The glass has improved tremendously over the years too, to the point that a lot of these are really usable scopes. And uh, I think that's great for people. Um, I hesitate to say that to get an entry into precision shooting because, you know, depending on what your budget is, it's not your entry, it's what you do, you know, you precision shoot with a thousand dollar scope, right? Right. That's, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to buy an alpha scope someday. Like when I win a lottery I'm not exactly sure, but, uh, but there, I find them very usable scopes now. And when you, when you couple those with something like the, the production Tika rifles that also shoot spectacularly now, you can have a very good precision rifle build for a lot less than you could have it a few years ago. And I think that's a, a great thing to see. Correct. Um, so, um, a couple other things about the 1K scope brackets. Um, they're a lot more variable in price over time, I've noticed, than higher price scopes. Like, th there isn't a sale on zero compromise optics. Um, Leopold doesn't really do sales. Uh, the prices don't really change on, the, on a lot of higher price optics. But the 1K optic bracket, oftentimes these things can be on sale for like $300 or $400 off. And so I feel like when you're looking through the views and whatnot, there's a reason I don't talk a lot about price. And that's because it changes and you need to look it up, you know? Well, that, you X, know, that makes sense. Yeah. So scope X being better than scope Y optically, I'll put that in there and if the price reverses and you have a scope and there's a couple of companies that do this a lot, Athlon does this a lot and Citron does this a lot where their prices can change a good deal depending on the time of year, if they're running a sale, the Citron S3s, for instance, which are one of the first scopes we'll talk about these with the PLR version, which is the current version. I think it, I've seen it everywhere from a thousand dollars, even to $1,600 at retail. And that's a, that's a big difference. The Athlons, I've seen them sometimes between 450 and 650 for the same scope. That really changes your equation when you're looking at which scope to buy at a particular time, right? Yeah, for sure. So you kind of, you have to, especially with the 1K scopes, you have to look up what the current prices and stuff are when you're, when you're deciding on a scope because it can vastly change what's the best, what is the best value option for you. 
Does it appear that they don't have the shelf life? So they're changing that kind of the the cheaper brands are quicker and easier for them to be a little nimble with. So, hey, new brand today. It's $750. Everything's good. Hey, we changed the label in a mag or we changed a reticle or this and it comes out next year as you know model a and now that one's 750 and the old one's 550 but really it's just either cosmetic or something simplistic they adjusted for a while it seemed like that in fact that's exactly what i thought like we've changed new year new model it's the same exact optical platform it's the same glass and we've changed and we're you know getting out the old ones for a lower cost and the new ones are coming in I've seen less of that the last couple of years. I don't know if that's just my perception of it or if if uh, practices have changed. But now I've seen a few years of relative stability where I haven't seen the same scope popping up from the same maker with a different set of labeling. There nice. are certainly always new, uh, you might call them pop-up um, companies that that brand OEM scopes. And those kind of seem to come and go a lot to the point that I don't notice most of them's entire existence. Yeah, yeah. And when we saw a lot of the veteran-owned, and and I think that helped a little bit, like that veteran, like Wrighton is a good example, where, you know, a lot of those guys come out of the Navy, they're doing this, they saw, like, the first batches, you know, they had an idea, and then when the batches came, they were like, okay, we got to shift direction a little bit. And now you're seeing sort of the right and getting their legs underneath them, and the scopes are coming out a lot better. Well, right and hired their own optical designer, too. Oh, did they? Nice for them. They okay. did. So that's why that's why that Arcan EP5, which we'll talk about in a little bit, has a little bit different optical design than our kind of what I'm used to seeing in terms of what they prioritized in there. Cause all optical design is trade-off Right. that has, for instance, the largest field of view of any scope I've ever tested, <laughs> which crazy. is kind of interesting. Crazy. I know it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> Cause you, usually, I mean, one of the predictable things that you get with a higher dollar scope is you get more magnification range and you get more field of view almost always, but not that, not in that case. <laughs> in, that, in that case, you have a budget scope that has just a, I have actually a field of view number that um, allows me to condense that all into one equation. And this is basically just adding the multiple of the field of view at the lowest magnification to the multiple of the field of view at the highest magnification, which are going to be two similar numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Big. And uh, when I add those two things together, I end up with, and then divided by two, I end up with kind of an average field of view number. Oh, nice. Okay, up. I see where you're going. Yes, yeah, so you're taking the whole yeah. range, and where am I here? Where am I here? I put the two together, and across exactly. the board, I got a number. Perfect. And that get, that number, if you're dealing with with uh, English units, will be somewhere around a hundred. And the and with larger scopes being, you know. 110 or something in field of view and smaller scopes being as low as like 90 and the the arkins multiplier is 124 which is just kind of absurd (laughs) yeah arkins the exception to all of this i mean it's you everybody has them you see everywhere they manage to hit you know the 500 chinese scope market but without them exploding apart every other day and we might as well, yeah, 
we might as well start with the Arkin because I have it up here, right? Because okay, cool. this is a it's a veteran owned business where a SEAL Team One veteran and and his buddy who was a business major decided to start a scope company, right? And um, yeah, it's a Chinese made scope. And I should note that in general, when it comes to optical performance at this price point, the Chinese are destroying the other the other competitors. Like Philippine scopes are every single one of them has been worse optically than every single Chinese scope that I've tested. Well, it's not particularly close. Like the Chinese are making a better scope optically at low cost than anybody else. They've gotten a good deal of ability at it. Yeah. So well they're putting investment in equipment more so and I'm sure the Philippines stuff has just been sitting around for the last ten years, you know, when whoever are the first ones that set it up. I mean, I don't know, because in the case of the, a lot of the Philippines OEMs, like they're big OEMs that are attached to big companies and that those companies at one of their other facilities are producing stuff at a competitive price point that's higher quality. Like Cytron has a location in the Philippines. They have a location in Japan, right? The Philippine stuff is a lot less competitive than the Japanese stuff at the cost. And I'm not sure why that is. Hmm. But I don't even think I'm looking at all the same OEM when I'm looking at Philippine stuff. But it is behind the Chinese stuff in every one that I've tested. And that, that went for the Cytron. That went for the uh, primary arms. And then there was, back in the day, there was a Burris, which is probably why Burris doesn't want me to review their scopes anymore, that um, just was also well optically behind where I thought it should have been. Mm -hmm. And now, well, and Burris did add a lot of stuff here. They're in Greeley. And I know they expanded the sh I've been here twice. The first time I went, it was more warehouse. Mm -hmm. The second time I went, they actually had clean rooms. Okay. So uh, Burris Steiner in my backyard over here, they, they've made significant improvement to the Greeley facility. Okay. Is that also where they do their manufacturing? Because I know they have a lot of U.S. manufacturing as well. I think this is where the U.S. stuff is being done now. I have seen the, the batch stuff come in, and that's where they batch mm -hmm. test. I've been in the rooms, and they have the women with the collimators and stuff, and they okay. run the batch tests through. And But I haven't been there lately to see if they were manufacturing. I know they were fixing stuff there, but now they may be building too. Yeah, because they do a lot of building in the U.S. This that uh, lower cost Steiner, I remember for a few years, was real popular and was made in the U.S. And, and Burris, honestly, the X um, the XT three line is very good. There, that's sub two K. That's the two K ones. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I yeah. think the Burris, um, the the threes and stuff and four, uh, we became um, very good optics for what they had there. Yeah. So who else you have? So, Arkin. Arkin. We little Wrighton. Little bit of Citron. The Wrighton. The Wrighton. That's supposed to come this year. I don't have those yet. Oh, okay. We'll uh, keep on the Ark. The Arkin here because okay. it's yeah. You know they've got the low cost, and then they've got on top of that the thing they call the combo pack, right? And this gives you a set of rings, a bubble level, and um, throw lever sunshade caps and then like some t-shirts and things like that some soft merchandise um 
the combo pack they sell it to you for sixty seven dollars when you buy their scope. Oh which my! Is just yeah, they're these are good rings too. That's the, the thing that killed me about them. Well, they're they're all been like the arc and stuff. I still have one I'm running on here, and I don't even think about it. And you see them a lot, and they do yeah. well in class. And those rings didn't stretch. Like usually inexpensive aluminum rings, when you're tightening them down, it's like you can you can watch them visibly stretch. Yeah. Like, I, I, no, these were better grade aluminum. I thought, I want to say I broke one set of arc and side plates with somebody. There was a set of rings, and I think I was either in Minnesota or Tennessee with a class, and we broke a set of arc and rings there. And at first I thought the guy, like, because I was helping him put his scope on, and I thought he gave me the wrong torque wrench, but he had a fixed stick limiter on it. That mm -hmm. you know that should have never. It was forty five inch pounds. It should have never did anything. And if I believe right, don't Arkin have the inch pounds on their rings uh, lasered on? They them? do. Yeah, they're yes. written on there. Right. So though, and and I remember like, shoot, did we use the wrong thing? Because it snapped. <laughs> they say, they they say 30 inch pounds. Right, right. And 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 we, and we had um we had a fix it stick. So we never went over and we still broke one, which could happen. I mean, I've broken spurs, you know, so it's not like it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, spur. Well, lot, lots of people broke spurs. I understand that was the thing that people were doing at one time. Yeah, the side plates kind of um didn't outgrow where we were going, so they changed a lot of side plates. Now you see those big fat thick side plates so you don't crack them yeah which is i mean side plates have to take a lot of force so that is definitely a thing that people can break on on scope rings and, and right and if you look at spurs you look at the gen and then you'll see how the side plate changed and why did the side plate change because torque snaps and things that happen with people in wrenches and i don't know sometimes i think some of these lower cost wrenches we use almost get like a hiccup in there and every now and then they don't you almost have to take them the other way and then back. To I don't think they're very precise. Yeah, exactly, they're not, and and that's why and I, I use the same. I use the same low cost. I mean, I'm sure like three quarters of us are using the cheap fat wrenches, right? Yeah, exactly. We use fix yeah. and sticks fat wrench pork because we all using the same stuff, and they're all buying the same thing, just rebranding them. Yeah, and I don't I don't think that those fat wrenches are probably particularly good. They they don't cost very much and precision instruments that don't cost very much aren't very precise. Services aren't very good. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. But I you know, I've I've shot a lot with this Arkin now. I love the accessory pack. When you combine it with the accessory pack, it runs about six hundred dollars. And I feel like you've got two hundred bucks worth of accessories there. And so you're dealing with a, a great overall value. When it came to the optics, they are behind the optics of like the arc. I mean, uh, of like the Athlons uh, a bit, but they're not very far behind it. And I felt like they did a pretty good job. It's a really, it's a usable scope. And at the price, it's excellent. Just put the sunshade on it because it, uh, to get that field of view, you get a lot of stray light. Right. You want to sunshade it. Yeah. The, and what's the sunshade's doing? It used to be the old, um, like honeycombs as well, is you're directing that sunlight into the primary and you're avoiding the scatter of the secondary that gives you the yeah. weirdness. And that's what you're trying to do with that. And that helps a lot. That helps all scopes. And a lot, a lot of times when I'm doing my testing, I 
I don't know if I've ever posted the picture with me with a giant piece of cardboard over top all the scopes, keeping any direct sunlight from hitting the objectives. But if you, if you want to test without the complication of stray light, then yeah, you sunshade the heck out of things. And it's, it's a huge difference. And it's a bigger difference with some scopes than with others, because some are a lot better at handling stray light. Nice. Which brings us to Cytron and the S3s which are very good at handling straight light. So the S3 is a really old optical design that Cytron's been producing for years in second focal plane for F-class. I mean, they've been producing it long enough that it only goes up to 24 and it was an F-class scope, right? You know, mm-hmm. I think they're shooting a little higher magnification than that now. But uh, in some ways, I feel like it's emblematic of what I felt like older optic- optical designs were like really comfortable to be behind um definitely involved a lot of human testing during the development but you end up with kind of a smaller field of view and uh, in this case also a very much lower depth of field and that's kind of like the trade-off you have with that s3 it's a it's a japanese made scope it's super light uh and the optics everything except field of view and depth of field is very good but those two things, it shows its its design heritage on. And um, they, over the years, they've changed the features of that. Like the first one I tested had five mil per turn turrets with no zero stop. Um, and that was the first first focal plane iteration of the S3 with a mil, mil, mil setup. And now they've got it in the PLR iteration, which they've added illumination to and 10 mil per turn turrets, which actually feel fantastic. Nice. I, I, mean, I mean, like really fantastic. I walked like, by Citron a couple times, but I didn't pop in. I should have popped in to look at that. Yeah, the PLR is, and they also had that one kind of aggressively styled with like some, I feel like it's very 1990s Japanese look to it when with like the bright red text and stuff. I really liked it. Nice. Unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't, uh, in style, the new one after that, they styled it after a different scope. I was a little disappointed at that, but I really liked the the PLR styling. And like I said, the, the adjustments felt really great. And depending on where it lies in any particular, um, any particular pricing at a particular time, it can end up a really good value. Yeah. Good, good, good. Who else you got on your list? Well, I guess then we can go to the, after the Cytron S3, we'll just continue on with the S-TAC, which was a lower cost Philippine scope that, that I reviewed a couple years ago. This was, um, it had their first iteration of a zero stop system, which was kind of an external collar zero stop, where the zero stop kind of worked like a jam nut. Mm-hmm. So you, it had the plus that, you know how usually when you have the rev indicator on the column because you have a knob that physically goes up and down yes the it doesn't start at the right place (laughs) and so yeah technically i have a rev indicator but since it doesn't start at zero i don't really know where i am (laughs) this one started at zero nice there you go so it gives you that 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 i used to have to tell people take pictures of it you know what i mean take a picture of your your vortex when you're on zero because that's where you have to come because they'd always be those revs off and not know where their zero was so you'd make them take a picture of it (laughs) so this this one has that column style rev indicator but it actually will always start at zero because that column is what's going up and down to set the zero stop. 
which is interesting. It's the only scope I've ever seen that did that. Um, at, but that scope, I don't li- like it optically. It's it's a Philippines um, manufactured scope, and optically it is behind where it should be. Um, where you know, depending on where it's priced at any given time, but where it's usually priced, it's. It, I thought it should perform better optically, so that was not my favorite of the Cytrons. Uh, there you go. I liked I liked the PLR a lot better. Um, and then uh, I guess we should talk a little bit. Next on my list is Athlons. Here I have tested a Midas Tac six to twenty four, an Aries BTR four point five to twenty seven, and a Midas Tac five to twenty five by fifty six, which is a, that one is a thirty four tube. The other two are thirty. So the big, kind of the big one there. And um, Athlon is a company that is a specializer in importing. So they're not, they're not a manufacturer, they're an importer. And so their scopes can come from different OEM sources, which depending on the lines, they do. And the lines can be a little confusing for, well, they're a little confusing for me. So I'm going to guess they're a little confusing for other people in that like the Aries BTR line and the Midas TAC line are roughly the same optically but they're different lines because one of them has illumination which is kind of an odd feature for me to make the differentiation based on maybe it's not for other people um but that's sort of how their the line is differentiated whereas the aries etr which i have never tested but they're quite proud of so i expect it's very good optically um that is actually different glass than like the aries btr so got it. the line, the lines can be a little confusing when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, they're, we've talked about their overall QC being excellent. And I felt like if you're going to pick a scope, that's like the benchmark scope that the other scopes end up being compared to in an organic way, that has kind of become the athletes. Yeah, like, I, I would agree with that. We, from everything yeah. we've seen and, and it's almost they're, they're, the router shell isn't always as elegant. Like, you know, they might have a shorter front, the turrets here, longer back. You know, they might have a this design, that design, where you look at it and it's like the, it, the silhouette varies wildly in my mind. But mm-hmm. they all perform almost all the same. Yeah. Every all three that I tested were within a hair's breadth of each other optically. The big one was a little better, but it wasn't a lot better. And actually, even though you have that huge magnification range on the Aries BTR versus the very small one on the Midas Tac six to twenty four, uh, optically it really didn't suffer at all from that. Nice, nice, Athlon, which was surprising, right? Because that's that's a huge, a huge range of magnification on a lower power scope. I mean, on a lower cost scope, usually they don't do great optically when they have that set of mm-hmm. constraints. That one did. And but they're generally light, too. Um, they focus close. And in the case of, say, that 5 to 25, which I've had on a rimfire for a long time now, it's got a full 35 mils of adjustment on it, which is why it's on a rimfire. Yeah, that's awesome, right? 35 mils yeah. is huge. Close focus plus 35 mils. like, And that's one thing we should talk about when it when it comes to buying things, sometimes features matter a lot more than other times. And if you're on a rimfire, it needs to have a lot of adjustment and it needs to f- focus close. Like these are important things. Yes. Cause I mean, I've never fired a center fire shot where I had like 
25 mils of drop, but that's not, the, that's not uncommon on rimfire. Well, that's even like the air rifle I have here my FX. It has the Zeiss on it with the 49 mils of adjustment. It's the four to 24 and, and it's got all that 49 in it. And that's for rimfire air rifle and all that. And then it focuses super close. I mean, you could read a, you can basically take 10 big steps Drop a dollar bill and you can read 100% of the dollar bill from it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's a perfect for Empire. Yeah. And it's not like these, these are features that are bad for Centerfire. It's just that they matter a lot more on Rimfire. Like a, a lot of these features, like almost all these, actually, every single scope that I've tested has plenty of elevation for my 6.5 grade bar out to any distance I ever shoot it. I, we don't run into elevation issues with the new scopes anymore. It used to be yeah. like, did you get the right base? Oh, you only have, you know, you're, you're, you're 34, but you need 39, you know, or in MOA mm -hmm. kind of thing. Or, you know, you, you got eight mils, but you need 10. And, you know, oh, you have a flat base. You didn't put it on a 20. We don't see that anymore. Everybody seems to be able to use a 20 to the way it should, or even the flats work fine to get them to like almost 1200 yards. It has been typical on, on a, even a flat based rifle. Yeah. My Leopold is on a flat base actually on my six, five Creedmoor. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah, exactly. It's got, it's got plenty of adjustment way more than I need. I mean, unless you're doing the ELR or you have a very specific reason for doing something, um, maybe it's 22, and, and you're trying to divide that range up, you don't see the conversations of chasing rails anymore. Like when mm -hmm. I first came up with the Schmidt and Bender, even before some of them, the, the 4 to 16, the little low pro Schmitts, actually wanted 33 MOA rails to work 100%. You know, mm, you know okay. there's all these little things like there was a 28 one, like you can get 28 them away with the AI mounts. So there were yeah. all these like 20, 28, 25, 30, 40. And now we don't have that problem unless you're doing an ELR thing. The rail really doesn't matter anymore. 99% of the scopes are going to accommodate you whichever direction you go flat or 20. Yeah, really. It's very, very much the case. Mm-hmm. All right, that brings us to the Miopta Optica. I think it was the Optica 6. Let me see here. That I reviewed a couple of years ago. That is an interesting scope. Ilya actually designed the reticle for that one. These are now, by the way, at, at 1.2K. I don't know if that's due to exchange rate changes or Probably. they were 1K. Every, yeah, they were 1K. And everything's gone up. Them. Some a lot more than others, though. That is That is. I don't know if that this is part part of the bizarreness that is Bidenomics, but there's been a lot of shift based on where a scope comes from. Whether it be like the Chinese ones don't seem to have increased in price at all, maybe because China locks down their currency with government manipulation, whereas American-made scopes have definitely increased. And this Czech Republic scope is increased a lot. It's at 1.2k now. When I think it was like 9.95 or something when I got it when I first looked at it. Yeah, so that's. I mean, uh, joys of Bidenomics, right? <laughs> Definitely. Well, it has a lot of unusual design features. Um, the zero reset is toolless because uh, it has a thumb screw on the top of it, which a lot of a lot of scopes have like a coin slot there. Mm -hmm. And the thumb screw is just a much smarter way of doing a coin slot. 
right? Yes. Because then, then I don't have to use a tool, and I have exactly the same effect from the standpoint of the scope design. Like maybe a lot more companies should do a thumbscrew. <laughs> Well, even Just like saying. that Maven, Maven has that top, and I love that top on the Maven. I'll switch a Maven around all the time. Out of the lower cost scopes, the Maven's probably one I'll jump to quite a bit. Yeah, I've I've been talking off some of the years with some of the um, higher end scope makers. Like, you know, how come you don't have a toolless? You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, and I know this is for you and me. This is probably a lot bigger issue than it is for other people because I change scopes around. All the time, too often, all the time. I screw up everything all the time. So, <laughs> in order to be able to more quickly bring these things back and change them around, like it's a big deal for me. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are some people like I set I set my zero a year ago, and I use the exact same ammo every time, and I never have to change it. Well, that's what even loner guns, I was swapping the Maven because it was toolless and that top just comes off and it was so much, it's like, hey, this guy needs, okay, let me just put the Maven on it because I know I'm going to zero it up quick. I know it's going to work. Everything looks good, but the toolless means this guy who's showing up to loan a rifle is not bringing any tools. I don't have to worry about him because I gave him a toolless scope. Perfect. It's wonderful. Right. And and like tangent theta and some low cost scope shouldn't be the only thing to have it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, with the Miopta, it's got a kind of an unusual zero stop system. It has like a cog in there and you, you set it almost like you set one of the, the almost ubiquitous now collar style systems that like Athlon and Cytron uses the same collar style system in now. So you get pretty used to that collar size system, collar style system. This one, it has a collar like that, but the collar doesn't interface in the same way. Instead, it's got this cog that turns, and the cog will turn twice as you revolve the scope, and then the cog doesn't turn a third time because it has a different shape side. So it'll do three turns, and it turns this little cog each time, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because you can feel it turn past the cog, too. It has this kind of a loose feeling. So you might think, oh, there's something wrong with my scope. Because the first time I turned it, I was like, oh, something loose in here. Well, literally, yes, something is loose in there, but it's supposed to be. And uh, kind of interesting that they have that system that's different than anything anything else. Yeah, it is definitely. How do you like the Oh, go ahead. There are a lot of differences about that scope, too. Um, they did that because they wanted to have the knob be a locking knob with the pull-up, push-down type lock, um, which is difficult to do with a normal collar system. Uh, actually, SIG did it on their on their Tango 6, but it's the only one I've seen that's got a, a locking knob combined with a collar-style system. So it allowed them to do that. Um, and and certainly with some engineers kind of creative solution to that but there are a couple things about that this scope that are a little odd like do you know what spline slop is sure i mean i understand what you're saying that the movement in your turret in between your splines yes so when you're going up with the turret there's some slop between that and going down and so if you if you turn the turret in the up direction your reticle ends up literally at a place that's slightly different than if you got to the same 
setting while going down. Yep, yep. I've seen where I've seen yeah. where it's almost like you're more towards one way and it moves there. And then if you go all the way the other, you get a slight movement, but you still haven't moved the click. Yeah. Yes. So in in this case, with this particular scope, they have 0.07 mils of spline slot, which means going up, you're effectively on a different click than going down. And I've encountered this twice. Any scope that has a spline between the knob and the actual physical adjustments has the possibility of this, which means any scope where the turret doesn't go up or down or any scope where the turret is the pop-up and lock type can have this happen. But it's only showed up on two of them. Hmm. And one of them is this Miopta. The other one we'll get to in, in the 2K scopes. It's any of the Minoxes. Got it, got had, it. Had a lot Which is all the same lot. people, really. Minox is GPO, Andy, all with Miopta, and he was. it's all kind of a little incestuous thing over there. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have a little... It's part of that GPO, I think, now. I think there's all like a little circle... It went from like Schmidt to Minox to Miopta and then GPO. It's it. There's 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 a relationship there. Mm, okay, I didn't know about that. Relationship. That was if you ever met Andy, who used to work at Schmidt and Bender at Shot Show. He's sort of a little taller than me, maybe five six, stocky blonde here, and he's the optical designer. Did the he did the Minox ZF. He did the oh, Schmidt and Ben. The Optronica guys. Yes, but not. But they're yeah. not Optronica anymore. They're GPO. Yeah. But they they had gone from like Minox to Miopta to GPO or something. There there's some kind of triangle. I knew they went from Schmidt to Premier slash Tangent before it was Tangent. Right, but then it, then they went to Minox. Right, then it all changed and it became like German Precision Optic, almost like a lot a light optical work for Europe. Okay, they're very good scope designers. Those guys, in terms of the optic. Oh yes, design. they're all the high end guys who just kind of once Schmidt fell apart they all left and went and did their own thing and then some of those names kind of got brought around okay well that was one of the two oddities with the miopta was the the spline slop which i'll be honest spline slop drives me nuts um, more nuts than it should um, and it also had some lash on the parallax which isn't something i test a hundred percent of the time but what that means is that when you adjust the parallax out, you end up at a different spot than when you adjust the parallax in. And in one of those cases, I don't remember if it's going out or going in, the parallax will readjust itself when the recoil happens. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, because there's a, you know, there's a, a tube in there and there's something running in the tube. Yeah, yeah. And, and the recoil's be, in a row. And... Yeah, the recoil can push it from one side to the other of the tube if it starts up on, out on that side. So. Lash used to be really common in optics, actually, but uh, they've tightened up tolerances in general, and so there isn't slop, isn't noticeable slop between the t those two. Usually, there is on this one though. It was uh, definitely noticeable. The the parallax setting can change um, under recoil, and it will change based on whether you went up or down when you actually adjusted the parallax. Got so. it. Yeah, uh, the the optical performance of this particular scope, the Miopta, is a little operatic. It has a big field of view, but it also has a lot uh, some distortion, 
which isn't that big a deal. Kind of a tight eye box, very good resolution, very poor stray light handling, but it didn't come with a sunshade and it doesn't have a normal threading on a sunshade either. So you'd like to have a sunshade on it, <laughs> but they didn't include a sunshade with it. <laughs> so it's it, it can be difficult to shoot with when yeah, the lighting conditions are Miopta so like Miopta has this ability to do whatever they want and it seems like no one ever told Miopta what we use that's been an issue they've had for years yeah yeah it's, it's like we can make anything and we decided to make this that doesn't suit really many people yeah their previous long range front focal plane scope. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, it was fairly expensive scope it was very odd on its features. Yeah. And I don't think ever sold very much. This one, um, had some input from more knowledgeable people. It ends up closer to what normal features are, but still, I mean, yeah, like you can see, they kind of made a few odd choices when it comes to mm -hmm. places that I think they should have tightened up performance a little bit. Yeah. Good. And yet, like I said, good, re very good resolution, better, better than average resolution or better than Athlon resolution, <laughs> which isn't really average. Like Athlon is above average, but it, it makes a good benchmark. Wait, that's our benchmark. If that's, if Athlon's <laughs> our benchmark for these scopes, it's, it's yeah. a little bit better than that, but it has these features that are a little bit below. <laughs> yeah. And it's very, and yeah, exactly. So I guess. We'll go to the primary arms ones now, the GLXs that you and I looked at the SHOT Show last year. Um, I'm not sure exactly. Primary arms, I couldn't figure out exactly how their optical company is related to the retail establishment. It's obviously related, but it's not exactly the same company. But from the standpoint of the user, you buy them at the primary arms website. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you can find them there. And... Clearly, some of the same people, but I wasn't exactly able to suss out the whole financial relationship there. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, we we have a relationship through Snipers Hide with Primary Arms. They're an advertiser, and they're on, mm -hmm. and and that they're very hands off, but nice people. Marshall's been on Snipers Hide forever. The owner, um, he basically came up on the hide. Yes, and and, and so, um, yeah, he he just been he. And then now he doesn't need to be talking because his company's grown so big. Yeah, it's huge. Right. They've and they've done they've done scopey stuff for years, right? They did um, their own reticle in Trigicon ACOGs, and then they've done AR scopes. They've done a line of those for a number of years. And this is sort of their they're moving into some doing some long range scopes as well. Right. Got it. Got it. And they designed the interesting things about um, the GLXs are they have a sort of a reverse plunger zero stop system that's kind of interesting. It works the same way as like a collar style one in that it's based on the turret going up and down, but they added to it a lock at, at the zero. And when you adjust it, you actually adjust it kind of opposite. You pull the collar up to a uh, plunger type thing instead of pushing it down. Got it which is kind of interesting. Um, they've also done the interface between the cap and that top of that uh, plunger 
in basically in like all stainless steel. So there's less marring of the set screws and stuff than normally when you're dealing with like the three set screw typical design that you see with, with zero stop. Right. Knobs. Digging into the brass or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really, these are really feature rich optics between that elevation knob, which actually feels very good as well. Um, they've got a fancy illumination system that has like an electronic auto off, which you usually don't get until a lot higher dollar scopes where you'll get the illumination, turn itself off. If you're an idiot, leave it on. And the, and the elevation travel on both of these scopes is just like massive. Nice. Did they do two colors too, or just in certain things? I don't remember. I think they do two colors. I think they're a red and green option. Technically. I don't know if in the long range scopes they do. But for some reason, I want to say not only do they have that active off with the illumination, they have like red or green in some of them. Like Night Force does. I think it might have been red if you rotated it one way and green if you rotated yes. it the other yes, way. Yes, I believe yeah. that's how I think it that's does. That's the way work. they did it. I don't think it's a. It's not a dip switch like it is on the ZCOs. I think right, it's or like Night thing. Force when they had that intelligent illumination when it first came out in the attacker. Yeah. It was sort of like number button pushes, but this is like go go away from you, it's green, come towards you, it's red, or something to that effect. Yeah, I think that might have been what they did. So it's got a lot of features and it's got a lot of um, elevation and it focuses close. So it's going to be an option that people like on their rimfire. Optically, these ones are Philippines-made optics and they perform like the other ones, which is... Well shy of the Chinese ones. Hmm. The There is an unusual feature on these primary arms, though, that the depth of field is just massive to the point that it's the most depth of field I've ever encountered on any scope. So if you don't like setting parallax, you don't have to move it much. Right, right. And, and did you just find, like, it, it, and I don't want to, it's hard to kind of, because we're splitting hairs with some people, and it's hard to describe that. When talking optics, because, you know, it's like, well, the Philippine ones are a little bit below the Chinese ones. Well, how do you give somebody like a value what that actually means? Is it is it just more you find like low light gets a little muddier? You're not quite it. it there's just something in a weird I mean, condition. The- it, it highlights a little bit more. Mm, no, or no, it's, you, it's, it's a dim. It is. No, it's not dim. All, all these scopes, they're so close when it comes to their light transmission. The, the coatings are so uniformly, incredibly high transmitting now that I don't think there's a tremendous amount of low light difference in scope performance. In fact, I th- and I don't think the low light performance when you go from one scope to another that have the same objective size is really even comparable person to person because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of interaction with your pupil size. Sure. If you and start so, changing objectives, then you start seeing these these variations. Yeah, bigger objective is just a ton more light. So yeah, bigger objective performs more in low light. Um, but when it comes to one or another of these, I don't think there's a tremendous difference in low light performance when you're talking about things that are the same magnification. The same so is it like what? resolution that you're seeing that's just off, or is it more of like a distortion in, in like Mirage blurs the target more and this happened? Um, in the case of Mirage, yes. Actually, Mirage is by far when it comes to dollar amounts and scope performance, 
the Mirage looks much, much worse on lower priced scopes in general than it does on the highest price, the highest price yeah. stuff. Uh, um, Jeff Huber ca- called this this effect micro contrast, where because you can make out things better. I don't know the best way to put it. No, I know where you're going with Jeff. And it I, doesn't I, yeah. look like there's as much mirage when you're. You're, you can define the edge of the target a little bit instead yeah. of it like blurring out or focusing. And that was one of the things we were running the Zeises. And uh, one of the guys from Alaska, a couple of them came down for a class and they don't get Mirage. Well, they get Mirage in Alaska, but they don't have the range and everything like we do. So Not like at, you guys do. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're at like 1,500 yards. And one of the guys from Alaska is like, Wow, I can see the edge of that plate at 1500, but like on the collis, that edge looks a little wavy to me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and really it doesn't affect on them hitting the plate, but they're, they're defining where that quality comes from. I think it, yeah, I think it makes target look like it moves less too. Yes, exactly. So the targets and don't dance as much that you're, uh this is where you're going. So when Jim's saying he sees the Chinese optics being a little bit better, you're going to have that target, you know, stand still a little bit better. You're going to be able Mm -hmm. to have an extra, you know, hundred yards in the mirage. You're going to be able to do really minor things. But if you live in Texas could be a big, big deal. You have the you have better resolution in the case of the Chinese optics versus the Philippines, and you also have less chromatic aberration. There you go, and 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 that's so, what's happening right now. But when it comes to the distortion, you know, like barrel and pincushion distortion, in truth, that's almost random from scope to scope in terms of like whether they cared about it in the design. Because the truth is, in long range optics, it really doesn't matter. Right. You know, you don't, you're not going to notice it. The only reason I notice it is on my checklist, there's a place where I go and I look at a dead straight item and I pull it through the different quadrants of the, of the lens to see if the dead straight. Well, item and that's why if you look at like the Horus <laughs> is where you can see like, um, that stuff. Cause people use the edges of the reticle and they'll be down at the bottom and they'll be in places most like I'm in the yeah. sweet spot with the Horus. Yeah. Somebody could be along the edges. And if you have that distortion that falls away, then your reticle is no longer correct what you're thinking because yeah. you have that little bit of distortion at the bottom lower edge. And if you're trying to hold over with a Horus, well, now your reticle's not a straight line. Yeah. This is true. Mm-hmm. And that's where, but if you're dead in the middle and you're in that middle third, everything's great. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of the primary arms, and yeah, the biggest things are its features and its uh, its depth of field, and and then its spectacularly high elevation range, nice. which definitely you're gonna have some people that, especially shooting rimfire, that those will be the right scope for. Um, Bushy Match Pro ED. I'll bet I'll bet you heard a lot about these come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people at the booth for these last year when I was checking these out. There was they were picked up a hundred, you know, hundred percent of the time. This has a ton of features on a sub thousand dollar scope, and I think they were seven hundred bucks if I'm not mistaken. So they were well sub thousand dollar, big five to thirty magnification range, illumination, and they actually have a pop up rev indicator on the elevation turret, mm-hmm. which 
you know, pop-up rev indicator on a sub thousand dollar scope. I think that's the only one, you know, and, um, that turret, by the way, I love that turret. I really wish that like some higher dollar scopes had that turret too, because they don't use it actually in their XRS three, but it's, it's a very different system that the revolution indicator and everything are actually in the turret. They're not in the scope housing. So when you remove the turret, cap you actually remove the whole elevation control and on the inside it has this thing that you turn to set the zero stop and so you turn it off the whole way one direction before you put the turret cap back down aligned to zero if you want the zero stop to be at exactly zero but there's also a trick where if you turn it back just a little bit then you can get a little travel under zero as well which on a scope that has that pop-up type turn indicator typically you don't have the ability to set how much travel you want below zero right there's right right some it's, it's set at zero like you. some of us want to go below zero a certain amount yeah. like what a night like, force i want to be able to adjust me below zero or do something correct and usually they'll a brand will give you say 0.5 mils below zero and that's right. just what they give you right out of the box um, yeah i think some of them are like 0.6 below, mils below zero it's somewhere in there and a couple of them have no mils below zero. And that's just what they give you. Well, this one, despite having that kind of a turret system, you can actually set how much you want below zero, which is awesome. It's something you can normally do with like the collar style systems, but you can't normally do with pop-up indicator systems. This system has it. And furthermore, there are no little tiny set screws at all. There's not there's none for setting the zero stop. There's none for adding and removing the turret. It has a coin slot on the top for pulling the turret off, and there's no stupid little wrench. Nice. Now, it's nice, but it also could be just a like they could have made that coin slot a thumb screw, and it would have been totally toolless. <laughs> so amazing. Like, yeah, the top cap could have turned right. Totally, totally toolless. Like, oh my gosh, how did they not do that? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you've already designed it so it doesn't have a single set screw. And I'm going to go on a rant about set screws here because I absolutely hate set screws. And, you know, my life is just filled with these. I have in my range bag, I have little tiny plastic baggies with Sharpie markers on them for all the different scopes, hex wrenches. Because I can't keep track of them. Right. And they're all very similar in size. And some of them are metric and some of them are English. So you can stick in one that's just not exactly the right size. And you can accidentally roll over the settings, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're totally right. I mean, it is such a mixed bag of what the fuck. They drive me insane. <laughs> and on top of that, if they're not quite tight enough, they slip. If they're too tight and a little off center, they bind. Like on that Schmidt and Bender that that you loaned me mm -hmm. that was what was wrong with that scope whoever had tightened it had tightened them a little unevenly and it was binding the mechanism there you go so you bind it a little bit of course they they always scar the post there that you're you're screwing them down on because that's what set screws do they strip out a lot <laughs> <laughs> then you've wrecked something and of course you can always just plain lose the wrench so <laughs> I love set screws. I totally think people should design more scopes with more stupid little set screws. Little bitty. And, and you know what? They always put them in a spot you can't even turn the damn wrench. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Then they can, yeah, they can get in the way of your, your rings. Everything. Kind of they get in the way of everything. 
Yeah. You got to tear. But now we're adding more shit, too. We're adding bridges and this and that. And then (laughs) the the night vision, or not the lasers and the things, and then everything's in the way. Yes. Everything's in the way. That's right. Yeah, maybe you've got like a, a, a cant indicator up there. Maybe you've got a bubble level. Yeah, yeah, the, the laser on the diving board. You got a bubble level. You mm-hmm. got a cosine indicator. You're hanging everything off your spur you possibly can. And now you yep. got to like loosen three set screws on each of your turrets. Forget it. Yeah. And you'd, and you'd love those set screws to be positioned so that they're not in the way of those things. But they're not. And so Always facing straight that. down, never facing up. <laughs> yep. Drives, drives me insane. And this... They have the opportunity to make this completely set screw free. Uh, and even now, like all it's, I mean, they have the opportunity to make it completely tool free. Even now it's set screw free and it, and it uh, could be so easily completely toolless, which would be just so wonderful. <laughs> so I, I hope to see that knob design um, on a lot of scopes in the future because it's, they call it the easy set zero stop system, which actually it's easy to set once you learn how to do it, but it isn't a system you've set before. So you do actually have to learn how to do it. Like it's not just, Oh, this is the same collar style system I've seen on six scopes. It's, it's, you have to turn it, turn the cap upside down and, Oh, I'm supposed to turn that little thing by hand. And they try to help you. They have like a little diagram inside the cap that said, Hey, turn it this way, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) They try. (laughs) They try, they try to help you. They also like bushy, with all their new scopes, they have this plastic keychain. That's nice. Cause it it like keeps your it's got a little coin slot thing on it, and it also keeps your hex wrenches and stuff in there. Yeah. 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 Which that's nice. That's nice. Uh but set, nice touch. set screws are funny. Yeah. I think we're on the last scope here. Okay. Yeah. So last scope was the Optisan EVX Gen 2. Optisan is an OEM. I don't know if I mentioned that uh, several of these scope companies are are produce their own scopes and also OEM. Uh, Miopta does that. Cytron does that. Optisan, Optisan does that. Um, so these are house brands of larger manufacturers. Got it. So this is a Taiwanese company that that does Chinese scopes, which is kind of in that pattern of for years, Taiwanese um, businessmen started companies to essentially interface between the West and China's manufacturing. Um, this is one of those type things. And, these, and this is the company that did the CX-6 scope that had my reticle like 10 years ago or so. Okay, okay. And for years, they've kind of produced stuff that's generally optically better at the price point than you would expect. And this is a tiny little crossover 4 to 16 by 44 scope uh, that I saw at SHOT Show last year that I really liked as a, as a crossover hunting scope. It has, you know, little 10 mil per turn turrets that lock and are small. And the whole thing is only 26 ounces. Um, no zero stop, but it's kind of more of a hunting scope. That's got all of the front focal plane, long range shooting features. But I don't think that the lack of a zero stop is probably going to hurt it very much given that a hunter's not going to shoot more than 10 mils. And they're not on the clock trying to do something fast like that. So they can set exactly. it, they can set a 200 yard zero and, and be like, okay, I'm, I, you know, I'm at a hundred, you know, I need to have 200 for this hunt, turn it to that and leave it alone. And, you know, however they want. And it's a small turret and it's a small scope. 
and it optically performed very well, uh, almost as good as the Athlons, not quite as good, very well optically balanced. Interesting. I think it, nice. I think it actually edged out the Bushy. We didn't talk about that. The Bushy's optical performance was good, but not great. It was, and it was good across the board. So yeah. it was just, it was a little bit behind the Athlons. It didn't do anything poorly. And I felt like really probably pretty good value there. In the um, past, I had mixed reactions with Bushnell. And then it kind of like something changed, especially when Gardner got involved with them. Because mm-hmm. um, that's in his backyard. And, and I noticed Bushnell coming out more consistent, more consistent, probably since 2016. Um, but in the past, I, I always had that mixed reaction with them, but they do seem to be a very good low cost feature, rich scope for people that, that, you know, is not crazy. I think that they're the several brand reorganizations that they have had as different parent companies merged and sold have been good for them. I think their people have improved each time. At least the people I've talked to at SHOT Show have improved a lot. And that um, their concentration on where the market is right now and where they need to be and their market positioning is better. Mm-hmm. And um, to the point that I think they're they're very much on the ball now. And I did not feel that way 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they were one of the companies that I felt like was kind of lost in the woods when I would go to shot show and talk to them. Okay. Yeah. Got it. But yeah, that little, that little optisan, I really enjoyed it as a, as a crossover scope. I think it was very optically good performing and small and light. Excellent. Excellent. And I think that's all the one at the the one thousand dollars scopes. Nice, that was a, that was a good hit on an hour and ten minutes, Jim. But yeah, I mean, you, you, if anybody out there, if you go to the front page of Sniper's Hide, there's tons of review from Jim. They're really really detailed. Um, yes. There are articles you can send out and share to your friends. Hey, take a look at this. Take a look at that. They're they're in. You don't find Jim, this is important, and you don't find Jim in the forum arguing with people like this. Jim puts out his information. It's out there. It is what it is. And like we were just saying, there's such a variety in who's using it, how they're using it. And, and, you know, it could be even one year's brand to another year's brand changes. So understand that there's a lot of variations in these lower end scopes. They're constantly changing the lines, constantly updating because they're cheap and easy to come out with a new logo, a new color, a new something to make it look like a lot more is changing. So you see a ton of movement in lower end scopes more so than the higher end scopes. Look how long the Vortex Gen 2 razor was on the street before the Gen 3 razor came out. Yeah. And I mean, I expect there was another lot of years in Leopold's Mark V line. Like, exactly. And, and Leopold's chasing it. Right. And, and, and so these reviews find out you don't have to break the bank. I mean, uh, even like I have a site mark over here. That's, that's was very good to use easy. It's not, it's not the best looking scope, the greatest, but it's a good solid scope. I would give to anyone to use if they needed that to get through the day. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of these scopes like the Arkins, we have a lot of success in class with people coming with Arkins. And, yeah. you know, they're not, 
fancy. They're not expensive. You're, you're, you know, but once everybody says, oh, you got to arc and it's like, oh, those work. And that's usually the mindset. So yes, you can go to the Asian market. You can go to the Chinese market and buy these optics and you're not going to get laughed off the range. You're going to have a solid product to get you either to the next step or to work within that rifle system without breaking the bank. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I am not opposed to any of these in, in the OEMs that are up and coming with people. Some of the new brands we'll talk about later in, in the 2Ks and stuff, like the Apex is out there. Great company, nice guy. I think Apex is, is going to be around for a while. And, and that's one of those OEMs, the Rightons, right? You know, those guys, mm-hmm. they're working it. They hired people to do this better. And that's how Vortex started. Vortex was a catalog company. And OEM is doing the OEM thing does not make a scope inferior in any right, way. Exactly. And that's what we want to put across with these sub thousand dollars. And it is a skill set. It is a skill set that some companies are a lot better at than others. There you go. When it comes to specking things out, when it comes to making sure what they're getting is meeting their specs, and when it comes to handling customer service, there is a lot to that. Yeah, cool. Now, um, go ahead, Jim. Wrap it up. Whatever you got to have there. Um, give your plugs that you need to, but definitely go to Sniper's Hide and check out his reviews, and we'll let Jim plug what he needs. All right. Well, I think the you know the important thing to talk about as the overall takeaway from the rifle scope reviews of the sub one thousand dollars scopes is. Do not ask me what the best scope for you to buy is. I don't know. Um, It depends heavily on what features you care about, how much money you're looking to spend, and what the current price is on a whole set of scopes. The reviews are there for you to look at at the reviews, get a good idea of how these things performed relative to each other, and then based on the features that you need and the current pricing, there will be a best scope for you. There you go. Right. I mean, that's the best there, way. There in- is no, there's no just answer to that. Right. I, I choose carefully what I review. I try not to review anything that I'm going to cut apart. And yeah, I mean, it's reticles too. The reticle is your point of interaction. Does that reticle yes. speak to your brain? Does that reticle say, yes, I can use this. Yes. I understand this. Yes. My brain likes it. Or does your brain go, wow, what do I do with this? If your initial reaction is, wow, what do I do with this? You probably bought the wrong reticle. You know, yeah. and that's part of it. It's it. Think of the reticle as your being your favorite color. You know, you don't want to mm-hmm. deviate from your favorite color if you can help it. Yeah, and it is kind of hard to switch up large sets of reticle themes, right? Like I've gotten really used to point two mil reticles because I've seen a lot of them. It's kind of hard for me to switch to the point two five ones. Yeah, you know? yeah, I get it. I got, and I have a couple of them, but it's a little difficult for me to make that transition. Whereas I know the guys that in the PRS that shoot on those 0.25 ones all the time, that just becomes the way they're thinking, you know? And it's practice. You got to go and do and and practice that. So definitely Mm -hmm. think about your training. Think about your interaction, your manual of arms. Where's the controls? How am I using them? All that's important. Yeah. Cool. Um, We are going to do another episode of this. We are going to do the 2K scope, so probably next week we'll follow up with Jim and do one more of these. But thank you, Jim, for coming on to the Everyday Sniper podcast. Anything else you got? 
That's all I got for now, Frank. Cool. Stay on the line. We're going to go out. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being part of the Everyday Sniper. Head on over to Sniper's Eye. Get your Gravity Ballistics app. Shot Show, they loved Gravity Ballistics. It was We were talking it up everywhere. There's going to be some big changes in the future with the Gravity Ballistics stuff. Not big changes, but big probably movements forward with it. Because people just don't believe how easy it is and how great it works. But hit the app store, Gravity Ballistics, the Sniper's Hide app for the form and the website. All works. Sniper's Hide app is free. Gravity Ballistics is five bucks. Thanks, everybody. Again, Jim, stay on the line, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye now.